Well, uh, as Pastor Tim mentioned as we started tonight, we are in the the second week of a series looking at the final week of Jesus' life. And if you were with us last week, we looked at what is often referred to in the calendar as Palm Sunday and the event of this triumphal entry of Jesus, where Jesus started to set in motion events that could not be undone. As, as he walked down, actually was carried down by a donkey, down the Mount of Olives, which is the hill overlooking Jerusalem, his disciples and the followers of Jesus started praising and openly declaring that he was the Messiah. And the Pharisees called him out on this and said, he can't be the Messiah. And Jesus said that even if they, they didn't say so, the rocks indeed would cry out. And he openly declared that he was Messiah, which starts to move things in motion towards this final week. And today we will look at the second day of the week, Monday, and see the events that took place on that day. Well, have you ever gotten uh, a bad first impression of someone? Or maybe you've given off a bad first impression to someone else and you, you weren't even sure that you did it and you didn't realize it at the time that it happened. I was uh, reading a story this week of a, of a man who said it was one of his first, I think he said his first job after college. And he was excited for it. And it was kind of an entry level office job. And the excitement was there. And he, it was in a, a large office space with lots of different cubicles. And he went and was at his cubicle. And it was a busy morning, but it's his first day. And his boss had several meetings in the afternoon. So there was a several hour time slot in the afternoon that was just kind of open. And it was his first day and he didn't really know what to do. So he said he sat back and he put his feet up on his desk and he started to grab a rubber band and make a rubber band ball, which you just kind of tie and the rubber band ball gets bigger and bigger as you just keep tying rubber bands around it just to kind of keep busy time. And he, he said a little bit later as this, the ball was about the size already of a baseball, so you've been at it for a while, right? this wasn't two minutes into it, a man walked by his cubicle and said, hi. And he was like, oh, hello. And the, and the guy looked at him and said, not a lot to do today? He goes, nope. He goes, all right, see you later. And he walked away. And the guy who worked next to him just walked over and said, do you realize you just told the CEO of the company that you don't have a lot of work to do? He, this feeling, oh, no. He said, miraculously, he worked there for five years. He said, either my boss was very forgiving or he just understood that I was lazy. I'm not sure which of the two. But sometimes we get give off or get bad impressions. And some of us in our time and our culture, when we think of who Jesus is, we've gotten a bad first impression of Jesus. Sometimes if, if we've been associated with Christianity, we come with a bad first impression of Jesus. And an impression of Jesus often comes from photographs or images of him. And a well-known, possibly the most well-known one in the Western world is a picture that looks something like this. Now, if I would have put this picture up and you didn't know you were at church, but you were outside at the bus stop, almost every one of us would have been like, oh, that's Jesus. Really? Because Jesus was a white guy with light hair? No, he, he wasn't at all. But why do we, we think that? Because this is image of Jesus. But oftentimes in our culture, the image of Jesus has not just a, done injustice to his ethnic heritage that he was from the Middle East and was a Jew, but it's also kind of given him this almost wimpy or weak look. Like Jesus is just kind of a, a clean cut guy, but oh, he's, he's going to keep to himself and he's not very strong or powerful. 
And maybe you've actually developed this impression of Jesus because of circumstances that have happened in your life as well. See, many of us have gone through difficult and trying circumstances, and the lies that we can tell ourselves about that, especially when they happen at a young age, is, well, if Jesus was actually strong and powerful, he would have stopped that pain in my life from happening. Well, today we're going to look at a story that shows Jesus as the total opposite of weak, the total opposite of incapable of asserting himself into a situation as we look at this this text today. The text that we're going to look at today is both Mark 11 and Matthew 21. They're both printed here in your bulletin tonight. So the, the text is right there for you to look at. And we'll be referencing back as well, which we'll have on the screen, to several different Old Testament texts that both allude to this event as well as texts that Jesus specifically quotes as he does the action that he does today. To understand and and, and to get a little bit of the significance of this event, it's important for us to try and understand as best we can a little bit about the significance of the temple to a Jew living 2,000 years ago. See, it's hard for us to really get our minds around just the scope and magnitude of all of life centered around this building. I think we have a couple pictures of it. The, The size of the temple in comparison just with the overall city of Jerusalem, was shocking. It dominated the skyline. It was up at the high point from the city and could be seen from almost everywhere else. I think there's another picture too that that shows a little more detail. And you can see the little dots inside are people. This was not some little church building where the people of Israel went. The western wall, which is that wall on the far side of it, the long wall, is just under 1,600 feet long. The top in the middle, the top of the temple stood about 15 stories high. And if you went to the far corner, it's the kind of the bottom corner on the picture here, it led right down into a valley that the temple was built on. So scholars estimate that if you stood on top of the wall and looked down, it was a 450 foot drop down to the bottom of the valley below you. That's 45 stories from the bottom of the valley to the top of the temple. The building itself dominated the skyline. It dominated Jerusalem. But there's a significance as well to the temple. See, in Jesus' time, there weren't temples and synagogues where the Jewish people could go to worship. There wasn't every temple or every city, excuse me, has a temple and this one's got a synagogue and they got a temple here. No, there was one place of worship. There was one temple and it was in Jerusalem. And it's where all of the Jews came to offer sacrifices and was the center and hub of worship. It was of such importance that after the temple was destroyed, after the people of God were removed and the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, it of course was Israel's great heart not just to go back and rebuild the land, not not just the walls around the city, but their heart was truly to rebuild the temple. The temple, because it was so significant and so meaningful for them. We ended last week, as, as the Palm Sunday ended, Mark tells us that Jesus walked down and it says he went into the temple, looked around, and left because it was late. And he did the two-mile walk up the Mount of Olives to the village of Bethany where he stayed, likely in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus overnight. Well, Monday morning, Jesus comes and he enters back into Jerusalem, but this time he's here early. 
If you look at the text here in Mark chapter 11, verse 15, it says this. As they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple, he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Jesus enters into the temple, likely through the south gate, up the stairs and into the large temple courtyard, which would be known today as the court of the Gentiles, where everyone would come. And in sitting in there was money changers and people selling doves. See, every person who had to come and worship at the temple, you had to pay what's called the temple tax. It was a half shekel when you entered in, but they had their own currency. And in order to do it, you had to take either your Roman currency or your Greek currency and take it to someone and give it to them and they would exchange it into the temple currency. You can kind of think of it as a currency exchange is what these people were doing. Alongside with them were people who were selling doves, possibly other animals, but certainly doves. Doves which were the sacrifice that the poorest of the poor were to bring to offer to God. It was the lowest acceptable sacrifice that they could bring to offer before God. And they're sitting in the temple offering these things to the people. And Jesus comes in and you can just picture the scene. He starts to flip over the tables. Picture the coins rolling, the people shouting. He goes up to where the birds are and he flips over the tables. Picture the birds scattering around, the people shouting. And then he tells them to get out and to stop people from coming in and bringing animals at all into the temple courtyard at all. We can see that what he's doing is a drastic action simply based on how the Pharisees respond to him, right? He does this, it says this, the chief priests were seeking a way to destroy him. They wanted to be done with Jesus. His actions were so large. They were so astronomically huge in the rebellion and what they meant in so many deep ways. And as we look tonight as, at this text and think about this story, I want us to look tonight at three things that this passage teaches us that Jesus is passionately for. Three things that Jesus is passionately for. And the first thing that we see here that Jesus is passionately for is he is passionately for holiness in worship. He is passionately for his people to be holy when they approach God in worship. See, this, this event that Jesus has done was alluded to in the prophets in two different places. In Zechariah chapter 14, verse 21. It ends the verse, Zechariah 14, 21 says, And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Looking forward to the day when the Messiah would come. In Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 and 3, it says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. 
But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. The prophet looks forward to a day when this messianic figure, the Messiah, would come and he would enter into the the place of God's residence, which is the temple, and he would act in a twofold way, first as a refiner's fire and then as a fuller's soap. A refiner's fire, the the imagery is of a fire underneath melted, um, excuse me, metals. And as it gets hot, the impurities are separated so that eventually you have something pure underneath it, but only after undergoing an intense flame that would refine it. The second image of this Messiah entering in is this of the soap. And it's a reminder of this distinction that, that the Jewish concept had between unclean and clean between sinful man and a holy God. And this Messiah would come in and he would purify. He would cleanse the people because of their impurity and their unrighteousness. See, rabbinic sources tell us that not too long before this event, the high priest at the time, whose name was Caiaphas, had likely moved all of this selling from outside the city walls in the Kidron Valley to actually inside the court of the Gentiles in to where the people of God would assemble, including those not just who were Jews, but could come from anywhere to worship God. See, Jesus is shocked and astonished, and he says they're quoting to them from the Old Testament in verse 17. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. My house, the temple, was to be a unique set, a place, a worship set aside to God, not reduced to the levels that they had made it in that time. See, it is a serious thing to approach the living God. It is a serious thing to approach the living God. And Jesus' action shows us that we need to have the proper respect for God when we come to God. We need to have the proper respect for God when we come to God. Have you ever been in a situation where someone didn't seem to quite understand or have the proper respect for the person or the authority that they were talking to? As I was thinking about situations like that, a story popped to mind from my life um, from several years ago. And I had been leading a missions trip with several leaders and high school students, and we had been in the Czech Republic. And on the way home, we had a connection layover in Germany. I forget which city, which airport. And we were flying from there back direct to Chicago. And as we were boarding onto the flights, we kind of have a system that, that we do with our trips, right? A leader, one of our youth leaders goes to the front and they kind of lead the way. And then one of us kind of takes up the back, right? It's kind of like if anything happens, right? If anyone gets lost or something, we're there to kind of scrange them and put them back in the place where they need to go. So we're about to board onto this plane. And one of our students, his name is Marcus, gets caught for a random inspection, right? Which means for me, 
I get to go with Marcus, right? Because what if Marcus gets detained? At least I get to sit in Germany while he's in jail or something. I don't know exactly. But, but I can't leave a high school student overseas and just show up back home and their parents are at the airport. Be like, well, I don't know. They grabbed him in Germany. I don't know what happened to Marcus. He's back there, right? So I got to stay with Marcus. So I, I stay with Marcus. And, and it's kind of you go out onto the bridge. And out on the bridge is kind of a separate area where there's a German officer, an official there, inspecting these people's baggage who were randomly selected, looking at their carry-ons and, and the other things that they have. And there's several different people. There's kind of a long line. It's very methodical and slow as, as they go through. And then the woman who is right in front of us, they start inspecting her bags. She's an American woman. She, she had been saying somehow just she's so tired and just so excited to finally get back home and sleep in her own bed. And as the German official is, is digging through and looking through her bags, he finds a little thing of pepper spray, a little thing of pepper spray, similar to how many women would carry um, common in the city of Chicago, right? Just a matter of safety in case someone were to come, a can of pepper spray to, to ward off an attacker, not an uncommon thing to have. And he asks her, he picks it up and goes, what is this? She goes, well, it's a, it's a can of pepper spray. And she kind of laughs. And he's like, what were you planning on doing with this? She goes, well, I wasn't planning on doing anything. And she kind of laughs again. And he looks at her, he leans in, he goes, were you planning a terrorist attack on the country of Germany because you had this? He didn't feel like he was getting the respect that he deserved. And suddenly the situation got really serious. And for her, the tears started flowing right away. Because he thought she was making light of this fact that he had. He goes, what, what weapon, what other weapons do you have with you? By this point, I'm standing next to Marcus, and I lean over, and I'm like, you better not have any pepper spray in that bag, dude. You better. He's like, it's good. It's good. I'm like, all right, thank you. I don't, I don't want this to happen again. But she didn't have this proper respect that he thought that he should have. And suddenly, everything was thrown off because of that. Eventually, she was able to give it away, and lots of tears board the plane and go home, and the, everything was fine. But it's this idea of we need to have a proper respect towards authority and we need to come to God with this proper respect and attitude towards him. We should not trifle in the fact that we can come before the living God. In the, the book of Hebrews, it says this. It says that, that we should, in Hebrews 12, 28, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence, and awe. Offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Sometimes we think that, that God is our friend, that Jesus is our buddy, that we can just kind of pal along with him. Yes, the God of the universe offers to be your companion and he loves you and he wants to be called your friend, but it doesn't mean that you can just approach him in any manner in which you want. And Jesus' actions here are a reminder of the holiness of God and the respect that he is due to, from us when we approach him. Have you lost sight of the holiness of God in your life? Just think about when you pray. How often in your prayers do you thank God? Do you praise God for his holiness, for his greatness? Or do we just rush right into what we need from God? See, God wants to know our hearts and our requests, but I think a lot of times we rush into the presence of God and we haven't realized who it is we're standing before, the king of the universe, the one and only holy God. 
And, and Jesus' action here reminds us that God demands and requires holiness from us as we approach him in worship. The second thing that this, this teaches us that Jesus is passionately for is Jesus is passionately for inclusion in salvation. He's passionately for inclusion in salvation. Meaning that even from the very beginning, God's message was to go out and to be good news of for everyone out there. When God called Abraham, he told Abraham that through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Even when God called the people of Israel, it was never meant just for them, but for all people. And Jesus says this in Mark eleven seventeen: my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, for all the nations. And Jesus is quoting here from the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah from Isaiah 56. And we're going to read several verses in context here to help us understand the weight and the significance because Jesus takes one quote from it, but these scholars and the people who are around hearing him would have understood the surrounding context and what Jesus is saying. Isaiah 56 starts the final section of Isaiah and it's looking forward to this future when, when the Gentiles will be included into the people of God. And Isaiah 56, starting in verse 3, says this, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for a house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those who are already gathered. Isaiah is looking forward to this time when all people would be included into the family of God. And by referencing that, the, that this temple is to be known as a house of prayer, not just for the Jews, but it's to be known as a house of prayer for all people. He's indicting them that the Jewish leaders, by how they've acted, have actually cut off people from having access to God. How they've lived their lives have flaunted their superiority and their own sense of self-worth that they've actually distanced people and not allowed them to come and approach God. This, this is Jesus convicting and starting to, to cast aside these Jewish leaders. We see immediately why, why this is seen, excuse me, this is immediately flushed out more in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, which is right there on your handout. The first paragraph talks of Jesus coming in. He says to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And then it says this, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. The blind and the lame wouldn't be allowed in the temple. 
They're not allowed in here to worship. They would be cast outside. But Jesus is ushering in a new age in which all people are to be included in salvation. All who have faith in him. And so much so that it says the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did. And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. And they said to Jesus, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? Jesus is openly being declared by the children to be the son of David. Now that's just not like, hey, he's got a cool, great, great, great grandpa, like lucky guy. The son of David is the Messiah. The children are singing, save us, God. Here is your Messiah right here. And the Pharisees are saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Jesus, tell these people to be quiet. You're not the Messiah. And Jesus quotes from him Psalm chapter 8, verse 2. Psalm chapter 8, verse 2. And we'll look here at the first two verses of Psalm chapter 8. It says this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. By quoting this psalm, Jesus isn't just openly declaring in the temple that he's the Messiah. He's declaring that this psalm, which was a, a psalm of significance and of praise and of worship to God, can be just as readily applied to him himself. The song that they would sing, oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Jesus is saying, yeah, you can sing that about me because it's true of me too, that I am that God as well, that I am just like that. See, by this action of what Jesus does and throwing out the money changers of inviting the, the weak and the lame and the blind and those who aren't Jews into it, he's throwing out this old system that excluded people and through him bringing all people who would to God. It's why in Ephesians chapter two, Paul writes about Jesus's action on the cross. It says, for Jesus our, himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus has, through this action displayed and ultimately through the cross, broken down every barrier that could separate us from God. And by throwing out the money changers, he's casting aside the Jewish leaders and saying, you have actually prevented people from coming to Jesus because of how you've lived your life. And he condemns them for that. Division and dissension in the church still happens today. This isn't a problem from 2,000 years ago that Jewish people were preventing others from coming to faith. It's actually still something that happens today in Christianity. So how do we in our world today, what, what do we do sometimes that actually is preventing or harming people from wanting to come and hear or wanting to follow after Jesus? Two things pop to mind when I think of this. One way that we do this today is that we emphasize politics over people. We've emphasized politics over people. I was reading this last week of a, of a study done across for many, many people. It was a well-known study. It's, it's true, basically what I'm trying to say. It's not on BuzzFeed. It's a legit thing that they did. And they said after the last election that one in six 
people have stopped talking to a close friend or family member because of the election. One in six people have so elevated how their view of politics is that they've actually cut off relationships with people close to them because of disagreements over the political climate. And I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't be politically engaged. I voted at the last election and none of the people I voted for got a majority. So I get to vote again as every Chicago resident does again in a couple weeks. It's good to be engaged in politics. It's part of representing Christ and being a good citizen in our city and in our world. But we've so elevated politics sometimes in our conversation, in our adamancy towards our views that people are turned off. Because people say, wait, you're talking like that? but you claim to be a Christian, I wouldn't want anything to do with that. And they see how nasty we treat people who would disagree with whatever party you find yourself with. And they say, well, if you're like that, but you claim the name of Christ, well, I don't want what's that. Because so often in our world, how Christians talk about politics is just like how everyone else is talking about politics. And it's insensitive and it's rude and it's not done with gentleness and respect towards other people. And by so elevating these discussions, we've actually, I think, ostracized people from wanting anything to do with God. We also can tend to do this in our churches by placing our own personal preferences for things over people in the church. We elevate our own personal preferences. Well, this is how I want it to be, and I don't care what anyone else thinks, because I want it how I want to have it. And however we think things should be, whether that's culturally sensitive to the people around us or not, is right in our minds. And because we are sometimes stuck in how we want things done, and we don't think about how others and our world would want it. Not, not doctrine, I'm not talking about anything like that, but preferences. I mean, I hate to break it to you, the Bible doesn't tell you what kind of music style your church should have. Right? It doesn't say if drums, if it should be an organ, if it should be a piano. That's all a matter of personal preference. Yet we've raised it to a level that we couldn't ever, or we would never allow people. And we've elevated things to the level of disagreement that we've actually driven possibly people away from Jesus. Jesus is rejecting anything that would divide and cut off people from him in his rejection of the Pharisees and the religious leaders through this action in the temple. The third thing that Jesus is passionately for that we see in this passage is consistency in living. Consistency in living. He calls in every instance that this happens, both in Mark and Matthew, as well as in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus calls them, he says this, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. You have made the temple a den of robbers. The den of robbers, this this word robbers here, isn't just a common word for a thief or someone who would steal. It's actually the word for someone who would be an insurrectionist. Barabbas, who um, who who was an insurrectionist, was known as someone like this. It's the same word, a robber. It's a national stronghold. One translator says you could easily translate it. You have made the temple a cave of terrorists. You made the temple a cave of terrorists, a place where people who do wrong can find safety in. And he quotes this from a well-known text to those people at that time from Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. 
Now in Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah was a prophet who lived several hundred years before Jesus. And Jeremiah was a prophet during the time where the foreign invaders came in and destroyed Jerusalem and took God's people away. And God gave him prophecy for that time in that place. Then now Jesus, by, by quoting this, is taking from Jeremiah and applying it to the current temple rulers of Jesus' day. So what was Jeremiah's prophecy leading up to when he talked about them being a den of robbers? This is a sermon that Jeremiah preached in the temple about 800 years before. Jeremiah says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Jeremiah didn't have a stuttering problem. It's written there three times for a reason. It was that the Pharisees and and the religious leaders of that day would say, well, it doesn't really matter because you know why? We got the temple. And if we got the temple, it doesn't really matter how else we live our lives because we can always fall back on this one fact, we got the temple. So all we got is the temple and everything else doesn't matter. Jeremiah continues, verse five. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place and in the land that I gave to old of your fathers forever. Verse eight says this, behold, You trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes. Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. By calling the rulers a den of robbers, he's ascribing to them that these same activities that Jeremiah prophesied hundreds of years before, Jesus saying these activities are the characteristics of your life now. That's what he's going after the scribes and saying. That's why when he he says this, they're like, We need to kill this guy because he didn't just call them some petty thieves who stole candy from the checkout lane at Jewel. He's calling them thieves and murderers. And he said they commit adultery and they've actually followed after other gods. That's what Jesus is accusing them of. Jesus is accusing them and he's passionately against this hypocrisy that so plagued their lives. Jesus is passionately for that we be consistent in our following after him. He is against hypocrisy in every single way. See, Jesus doesn't want all of your life, excuse me, Jesus doesn't want your life simply on Sundays. He wants it also on Mondays and Tuesdays, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Jesus doesn't want just your spiritual life. He wants your social life, your family life, your business life. He wants all of your life. Jesus doesn't want you just to show up and to sing well and to to do the right things at church and leave and presume 
that you're fine with how you live your life because you can fall back on the grace of God. Oh, well, I got that to fall back on. Right? Every time I mess up, I can just ask Jesus for forgiveness. It'll all be good. It's like the, the scribes thousands of years ago, oh, the temple, we got the temple that we just fall back on, but we live hypocritical lives. See, Jesus is passionately wanting all of you. Are there areas of your life that you're keeping from God? Where you're living in hypocrisy? Where if the, the doors of your life and your heart would be opened to the Christians around you, the people who know you, that it would shock you, the sin that's so deep into your own heart. See, all of us struggle with sin. But sometimes the temptation can be that, that we act one way at church and then it's fine if we leave and act another way. That's how the scribes live that Jesus so clearly rejects. He doesn't just want you to come and worship him. Jesus wants all of your life. God, we thank you that you are passionately for us. That you are passionate that you would receive all of the glory that's due your name. That we would worship you in a holy and reverent way with the proper respect that you deserve. That Jesus is passionate for all people would come and worship him, that no one would hinder anyone from coming to him. God, I pray that you would expose the areas in our lives of hypocrisy, of self-righteousness. Jesus, expose in us where we're justifying our own sin. God, and would you help us to become more and more and more like you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.